Welcome back to America's Talking. I'm Austin Berg. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Vance Ginn. Vance is founder and president of Ginn Economic Consulting. He serves as chief economist at the Pelican Institute for Public Policy. He previously served as chief economist of the White House's Office of Management and Budget. He's taught many economic courses at institutions of higher ed, including Sam Houston State University and Texas Tech. He's also the host of the podcast, Let People Prosper. Dr. Ginn, thank you so much for joining us. Austin, it's a pleasure to be with you. First question, the one on everyone's minds, cost of living is the biggest thing in every poll that we see is driving political decisions right now. What's responsible for the inflation we see? Is it what amount supply chain? What amount is the Fed? What amount is Trump fiscal stimulus? What amount is Biden fiscal policy? Give it to us. Yeah, inflation, right? Everybody's mind is inflation, inflation, inflation. What exactly is it doing? Where is it coming from? Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about this over the last couple of years where inflation is now the highest in, in about a generation, 40 years, you have to go back, um, right around 7%. And it's come down some from its highs of around 9%. But when you look at the period, basically since the pandemic and early 2020, COVID-19 and everything else, there were a lot of supply side effects, supply chain disruptions, and people stopped, you know, working. So all of this contributed to less production in the economy when you think about demand and supply. So that drove prices up. And so some thought it was going to be transitory was the word that was used a lot. This is transitory inflation. But the problem there was is that there were a lot of other policies that were put in place. Congress ran up a lot of government spending during that period. We're sending out checks, bailing out um, you know, businesses that were forced to close. There were just a lot of money that was sent out. There was about $7 trillion in new debt that was added by Congress just a little over two years that put the national debt to over $31 trillion, which, which amounts to about 90 $93,000 per every man, woman, and child across the United States. So what happened? Well, you know, the Federal Reserve could have just let interest rates go up, but they also wanted to keep interest rates low throughout the economy, their target federal funds rate. And so they put a lot of liquidity. They bought a lot of the debt in the economy and bought a lot of that national debt for more money in the economy. And if when you have too much money chasing too few goods, uh, because, oh, by the way, the Biden administration also overregulated things like oil and gas, you know, cutting off the Keystone XL pipeline. There was a lot of regulatory barriers for businesses to continue to increase production. So you have more government spending, redistributing income, more national debt, higher interest rates, uh, more regulations contracting the supply side, and more demand from all this increase in money. And we have massive amount of inflation um, and an artificial growth over the last couple of years in the economy. And so I really think it, it boils down to what Milton Friedman said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. It goes back to the Federal Reserve. And right now, what we really need is for the Federal Reserve to start cutting its balance sheet before we really see inflation come back down to more normal growth rates of around 2%, which is what the Federal Reserve tries to get it down to. And in fact, we may need to see some deflation because uh, we've had an affordability crisis now in so many areas of our economy. So when you talk about inflation being a function of the Fed's balance sheet, right? the struggle that some people have with that is they see hey, the Fed balance sheet grew, I think, $3 trillion or so from 2007 to 2019, right? And inflation, you know, it was, it was, there was some inflation, but it wasn't that bad. It was, you know, less than 2% a year over that time. How do you explain that? What's the explanation for that? Yeah, it's a great point because right around that time from 08 to 11, there was about an increase. I think you're right, right around $3 trillion. Um, during the most recent time since the pandemic, the balance sheet 
more than doubled from four trillion up to nine trillion. So it's come down a little bit, but it's about eight point, I think six trillion now. Um, so at that time, though, during the 08 to 11 period, you're right, there wasn't a rampant increase in inflation like we've seen today. But there were also other mechanisms in place that the Federal Reserve was using. They were paying a higher interest on excess reserves, which just means that banks hold money at the Fed, um, their excess reserves, these deposits that are put in there, um, and they would pay an interest rate on it. And that interest rate that the Fed was paying them was a, there was no risk to it. So would you want to lend that money out to the private sector, which had a lot of risk as we were coming back from the Great Recession, or give it to the Fed, essentially no risk, <laughs> and get an interest rate on it, get a rate of return? That's where they would park that money. So that mar- that money was pulled out of the economy. So the same time the Fed was printing money and putting money out there, it was pulling it out from the other side um, and keeping it out of the economy. And so that contributed to there not being this rampant increase in inflation. That same situation isn't happening now and it hasn't happened over the last couple of years. So last, last thing on the Fed, in the weeds on the Fed, the other common comeback for, hey, this is a monetary phenomenon is, man, the Fed is just, you know, they're doing their job. They're responding to their mandate. They're responding to changes in economic conditions, right? They want to react to these fluctuations to in economic act- activity to ensure price stability. They're just responding to changes in the demand for money. How do you respond to that? I think you're right. In, in their view, the Fed is, is contributing to that. But I think what they get wrong are a lot of their models. Uh, a lot of the models that are used by the Fed, and even at the White House where I used to work, we'll talk some about, you know, a lot of their models are based on this Keynesian sort of modeling where um, wage growth drives inflation, where there's a trade-off between wages and the growth rate in the economy and the unemployment rate, uh, or inflation and the unemployment rate. It's called the Phillips curve. There's some sort of trade-off between these. Um, and as Milton Friedman found and others have found over time, that there's not a long term relationship between those. You can continue to have increases in inflation um, even as the unemployment rate goes up, which we saw in the late 1970s when we had a period of stagflation. That's not a good situation. It's actually a lot of what I think we have now, even though the unemployment rate looks low. It's pretty around 3.7% nationally right now. There are a lot of people who have dropped out of the labor force and have not been looking for work as many of them are getting paid um, basically to stay home on a lot of safety net programs that are out there, and they've been disincentivized to work. Work, which is also contributing to labor shortages that are going on. So while the Fed may seem like they are following their dual mandate of price stability, maximum or, or full employment, um, they also have a third one of keeping interest rates kind of stable as well. Um, so those those types of, of mandates that are on them, the only one that they can really control from what my view is, is inflation. That's the main one they've got to look at. And so when they put all this liquidity in the marketplace, maybe there was a time for that early on during the pandemic to get money out into the economy, but there's not anymore. And a lot of that has been driven by the Congress overspending, running up massive debt, and they don't want interest rates to soar. So they've got to put more money into the economy. So it's a combination of the two, right? Congress is overspending and then the Fed. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I would love to end the Fed. I I don't think that there should be a central bank. Um, I think we should allow for free markets, which allows for free people to work within a system um, and allow for competition of currencies within the marketplace. Uh, We have a long way to get there, though. So until then, the Federal Reserve should be run by a rule, a monetary rule um, that keeps that makes that makes sure that inflation keeps under control. And they haven't been following even one like the Taylor rule um, over the last couple of years. So I'm glad you mentioned some workforce stuff. You touched on it a little bit. I know you've done work on anti-poverty and poverty alleviation efforts. I think Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty in what, say, late, late 60s, 65. Yep. Mm hmm. 
we've spent more on the war on poverty than every, every actual war by a lot. And yet it remains stubbornly high, depending on how you look at things. Um, has it moved too much in the United States over that time? What is effective poverty relief look like in your eyes? Yeah, since 1965, when LBJ declared the war on poverty, $25 trillion in current dollars, right, uh, or real dollars over that period, inflation adjusted dollars, I should say, um, is $25 trillion. So it's a massive amount of money. And even more than 80 federal programs that we have today on safety nets to help people out, we're spending more than a trillion. I think it's like $1.2 trillion a year. So if it was just increasing spending, we should have solved every poverty issue in the country. <laughs> We should just be paying people out all this money instead of having all these programs. Um, but instead, what we find is that a lot of these programs trap people into poverty because they don't have an incentive to go to work to get higher income because when they do, they lose some of those safety net payments that are being made to them. Um, it's called the benefits cliff, right? You make a little bit more income, you actually lose more in the payments from those safety nets than you do in the income gained. And so you have a disincentive to be more productive, to get a higher paying job, and all the good things things that come with um, having a job of hope, dignity, respect, all those sort of in just productive capacity overall. Um, and so what I think is, is we've got to get back into the idea of thinking that the best path, best path out of poverty is a job. We need more well-paid jobs that are in the system. And then the safety nets that we do have for the neediest among us, I would love to see the day where we don't need any safety nets, right? That's my longer term vision from a classical liberal perspective that they're not a welfare system from government um, because there are so many well-paid jobs. There's a flourishing economy and flourishing civil society for families and churches and synagogues to help people out. But we're not there yet. So we're going to have some safety nets that are, go on. Um, and so I think we need to streamline those. We need to get them to where the dollars are actually going to the people that are the programs are intended instead of to bureaucracy and waste and other things that go in. Um, and I think if we can do that, we can provide more long-term self-sufficiency for folks compared to the handouts, the, the short-term um, sort of benefits that people get today. So what is an example of you think of, is there one, an effective streamlined anti-poverty model? So like a safety net that you think, hey, this is great. Is it is that not in the public sector right now? Or, is, you know, what are some models that you think are promising? I think the the most promising to me um, is, is something that I've been working on for a while and it's been built from a lot of other research that's been out there. You know, we've, we've heard of a universal basic income, a UBI, which is basically a, certain, a set amount that's paid to everyone across an economy to give you a basic amount of income to cover your necessities. Um, I don't think that's a good approach because it disincentivizes people to work across the income spectrum. Um, however, I do think that there is an approach there for just those that are needy, just those that are in poverty today. So we can streamline a lot of the programs we have today. There's the temporary assistance to needy families. TANF was called uh, SNAP, Supplemental um, uh, Nutrition and Assistance Program, our food stamp program. You know, there's there's WIC, the women and infant and children sort of funding that goes on there. And there's housing vouchers. What if we were able to, and there's a lot more that are there. What if we just take some of these, streamline them, get rid of all the bureaucracy for each one of them, have one eligibility criteria, and then give them a, an account, what, what I've called an empowerment account. And just say, look, here's your empowerment account. 
discount. You can buy whatever you want across what these goods and services that you're, that are approved. Um, and, and, and then you know what? You get to keep that money even after it's over with if you don't spend all, all the money during that period of time. Um, and it's connected with a financial app so people can actually start to learn a little bit more financial literacy and connect them with a community navigator, somebody that can help them in the community itself. And I think by putting together these tools, we can set people up for success for the future. A lot of times the programs we have today, which is why it's difficult for me to come out and say, okay, let's look at this one. Because I think a lot of the, pro- most of the programs that we have today are failing that they're not getting people to long-term self-sufficiency. They're basically covering them for a short period of time to get them, quote-unquote, out of poverty, and then they're right back in it. That's not a good situation. We, we shouldn't want that. We don't want people to go in and out of prison having a high recidivism rate. Why would we want people to go in and out of poverty? That That's not the ideal sort of situation. And so if we get people connected to work, it can, the community, um, and, and ultimately finding some financial literacy, I think we will give you in a better position for people to be able to overcome it, whatever the obstacles that they are, you know, whether it's drug addiction, maybe it's a divorce. There's so many things that get people into poverty that I think we can overcome some of these obstacles. Got it. So you don't want UBI, you want a targeted BI with some community support attached to getting that money is is the basic idea. What do you think are some of the biggest economic fallacies in pop culture? Like when you're, you're watching TV and someone says something about the economy and you're like, I have to turn this off. (laughs) probably a lot of them. Um, One of the big ones that I see right now is modern monetary theory, that somehow that's going to work. Um, but I think we've actually practiced a lot of monetary theory just over the last couple of years. And, and essentially, right, for the audience is that monetary theory says is the Fed can print whatever they want. Uh, there's not going to be increases in inflation because all you have to do is raise taxes to bring the money out of the economy. So that also means you can run up government spending and run up deficits however you want. Uh, and there won't be any big sort of side effects, no cost to it. Well, we're seeing the cost of that now with high inflation, the redistribution that goes in throughout the economy. Um, and I just think that this is a huge fallacy that has um, plagued a lot of those folks at the Federal Reserve and within within Congress. And it's something we need to um, get over soon. The, the other fallacy I, I see a lot is that uh, government spending can stimulate the economy. Um, if you, if you want to spend a dollar, that dollar has to come out of the private sector. There's no free lunch. The government doesn't have its own money. It all has to come from the taxpayer. So really what it is, is is just a redistribution of income. It's a fallacy that's based on Keynesian economics, where Keynes basically said, look, we need to run deficits when we have a recession in order to fill the gap in the economy, the the, the lack of growth within the economy. But you know what Keynes also said? John Maynard Keynes, right? Um, He wrote the book, The General Theory. He also said that during expansions in the economy, you should run surpluses. (laughs) Well, we never do that because the rent seeking, the populism sort of approach that's out there today is, is that you've got to cut government spending and you've got to give handouts. Well, that doesn't work very well whenever there's an expansion, because then you should be cutting government spending um, and maybe raising taxes and to, to balance the budget over time. And, and we don't do that. And the, and the third big fallacy right now that I see um, is, is someone who's on the right, like I said, a classical liberal, um, is a lot of the view of populism and the national conservatism sort of movement. I think that we they identify a lot of the problems that are there um, for, and maybe from, you know, that whether, whether it be in the workforce or inflation. But in, in my view, right, is that they're overlooking the cause of, the, of many of these problems is government. And their solution then is that we need a government solution to these problems, whether it be unions or wage subsidies or something else to help people out. But 
when you add government to a government-created problem, with government failure, not a market failure, but a government failure, you exacerbate the problem. And I see this in so many areas right now that I think um, hopefully more people will start to talk, talk up about it. Because if not, I think we'll repeat a lot of the mistakes that we've made in the past. And hopefully we should learn from those so we won't repeat them. So you talked about sort of no free lunch, tenets of classical liberalism, fiscal conservatism, and then you look at the last few Republican administrations in the White House, and it's not as though they're pictures of, you know, fiscal probity, right? And in many cases, the right. exact opposite. How do you explain that disconnect? I mean, you've been in those rooms. Where, where does that come from? I think a lot of it has to do with, again, this idea that you need to give some sort of handouts, right? Is that if you're going to get tax cuts, there's going to be trade-offs where in order to get enough votes within Congress, um, that there's going to be some increases in spending along the way. And, and ultimately, I mean, you're right. I worked, worked in the Trump White House from June 2019 to May of 2020. I was the Associate Director for Economic Policy or Chief Economist, if you will, of the Office of Management and Budget. The Office of Management and Budget within the White House, within the executive branch, has more power than I ever thought. <laughs> I, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't know a whole lot about it before I got there. But th that's where all the dollars that Congress passes, they flow through OMB to go to all the other agencies in, in the uh, executive branch. Um, and so it's quite phenomenal to see what you have to do in order to put together a president's budget. I was on what's called Troika, uh, which helped to bring, bring about all the economic assumptions that go in the president's budget, which was the last one that Trump had in fiscal year 21. We found four points six trillion dollars in savings over a decade, but we still wouldn't have balanced the budget for 15 years. That's how just screwed up the federal budget is. But you're right. I mean, it has been um, Republicans and Democrats both overspending, you know, even President Reagan, someone who many on the right and conservatives will say, look, he was a great fiscal hawk. I mean, ran up massive deficits. He had some good, what I think were pro-growth tax policy, but government spending continued to expand. Um, even under the Trump administration, right? I, I I think the Trump tax cuts, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 were very important, cutting the corporate income tax from 35%, the highest in the developed world, down to 21%, which is more of the average in the world, um, cut all the other tax rates as well. But there ended up being too much spending. And Congress has the power of the purse. The, the, the president doesn't control that. So you've also got to look at who was in Congress at that time. And that was a combination of Republicans in control of Congress when Trump was president and Democrats. <laughs> and so I, I think that there is a fiscal crisis that's here that people are not uh, wanting to go in and make the difficult choices to rein in government spending, which has to come through Social Security reform, um, Medicare reform, Medicaid reform. Those are the driving parts of the overall budget. Yes, the discretionary parts of the budget needs to be looked at because if, if if government can't get their own house in order, how are they going to get the house in order for senior citizens and, or or for the or for the poor? It's a hard argument to make, but we've got to start somewhere, or we're going to continue to run into big problems. My my big initiative, you know, Austin has been to have spending limits. I think the federal government needs a spending limit, just like most states do across the nation. Um, and a big part of that would be basing the growth and spending to just population growth plus inflation uh, as a maximum. And, you know, over the last 20 years, we've increased the national debt by $17.7 trillion. Had we just matched population growth plus inflation each year, instead of a $17.7 trillion deficit, we would have had a $1, a $1 trillion surplus.
$1 trillion surplus, a reduction in the national debt. That's an $18.8 trillion, um, $18.8 trillion swing that I think just from controlling the growth rate of spending. We never have a revenue problem. It's always a spending problem. And unfortunately, it's by Republicans and Democrats. So my next question was going to be, you know, you're not a political scientist, but all the economic policies that you want have to go through some political process and a political lens. And when you start thinking about some really big, hairy issue like Social Security, it's very easy to think it's just doom, right? You can't, no, no political party wants to touch that. It's directly against their interests to touch it at all. It's more, it's going to just be kick the can as the incentive there, right? But what you're saying is perhaps, especially because we've seen it be successful and be passed in, in all sorts of states, a spending cap is sort of a more politically feasible thing that could be done to at least slow growth and let economic growth catch up to spending growth. That's the idea, right? That's right. So yeah, yeah, some hope. People can leave this podcast with hope, maybe. I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) So, What's uh, interesting, Austin, is you know I'm I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist economist, which usually does not go together, uh, but I am. So I'm hopeful about the future. Yeah. So that was actually going to be where I wanted to wrap up with you is economists get a bad rap for being cold, heartless, soulless uh, computers who just talk about people like numbers and people actually aren't rational that we can't view people like that. This is removing the human spirit from any kind of our, our, our thoughts about politics or our thoughts about the world. As an economist, what do you say to people who are so skeptical of the, this kind of approach to, to thinking? I, I think that there are many economists that are that way. Um, I'm not. And to me, economics is really about helping the poorest among us the most. Um, economics, the way that I like to define it, is the study of human action and interaction within institutions to satisfy our desires based on scarce resources. Scarcity is so important. Um, and, and institutions are so important that are all around us. Um, the marketplace is just is nothing other than institutions. You know, when people say free markets, they're really saying free people. That market is nothing else but people. So when you don't, when you want to turn away from free markets, like some the national conservatives want to do now, in my view, they're turning away from free people. They want to control people. They want to control decisions that are out there. And this is what the progressives have done for a number of years. We don't need to go down, you know, that route. And so my view really is that we need to flourish. Uh, I believe. God created the earth for us to flourish and for humans to flourish overall. And that's one reason why I have that podcast, you know, let people prosper. Um, that's really a lot of that I talk about is how do we prosper? How do we flourish overall? And I don't mean just in material things like income, um, wealth, our house. I also mean spiritually. I mean, psychologically, socially, I think that comes with individual liberty, a free enterprise system, personal responsibility. You know, these are the things that were embedded into the idea of America's founding that unfortunately, I think we've gotten too far away. Uh, many of the big sectors of our economy are dominated by government. When you think about healthcare, education, manufacturing, and then they wonder why these areas aren't flourishing as much as they should be. I think it's because of too much government. And so I, I kind of push back on that, that, you know, economists are are dull or, or not wanting for the betterment of people. Um, that's the reason why I get up and do this every day. That's what motivates me is to let people prosper. Dr. Van Scan, you can listen to his podcast, Let People Prosper. Dr. Gann, thank you so much for talking. Thank you, Austin. It's been a pleasure. 